Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie on July 18th, 2021 during our Sunday evening service. We have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday school at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service for adults and the youth group at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. We want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. And Thank you, Chuck and Amber. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we pray for a deeper sense of awe. God, may we be amazed as we consider your great love for us, what you have provided for us by sending your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die for our sins, God, and, and raising him from the dead, giving us life and hope. Uh, God, you are an, an amazing God. Your love for us is amazing. And so, God, we just pray as we go to your word tonight that we would uh, get a glimpse of your glory and your greatness and give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29. William Phelps taught English literature at Yale for 41 years until his retirement in 1933. Marking an examination paper shortly before Christmas one year, Phelps came across this note. God only knows the answer to this question. Merry Christmas. Phelps returned the paper with this note. God gets an A. You get an F. Happy New Year. That was uh, recorded in Today in the Word, October 1990. There are things that God does only know. I want you to look with me at Deuteronomy 29, 29, a verse I go to very frequently when we talk about the mysteries of God. Speaking through Moses, God says to us, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. There are things that God reserves that belong to Him that you're not going to know. I believe there are things in all eternity we're not going to know because how could we ever understand infinity? (laughs) It will take infinity, and yet we still won't understand the infinite greatness of God even after all that time. So there are certain things that God has reserved for Himself. It's His right as Creator. Nevertheless, look what He says next. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are things that God has not revealed to us. However, there is much that he has revealed to us. And this truth belongs to us and to our children forever that we may do what God has commanded us to do. And over the last few weeks, we have been looking at some of the things that God has revealed about the future in our study of prophecy. Now, last week and tonight, we are considering what I'm calling shrouded prophecies. These are prophecies that are embedded and coded into the text. These are mysteries. These are things that we would not be able to understand if God did not reveal them to us after 
the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the sending of the Spirit on Pentecost, after the new beginning, what we call the church age, and the recording of what we call the New Testament by the apostles and prophets sent by Jesus to us, to the church, there are things that we can know, mysteries that we can now understand that do not belong solely to God, but now also belong to us. And so over the last several months, we've seen that prophecy is a promise. Prophecy is a proving ground. We've talked about the fact that prophecy often follows a pattern so that uh, it will reinforce itself. Uh, A symbolic fulfillment of a prophecy does not mean that God is not going to literally fulfill that prophecy. It's not a substitute fulfillment. Nevertheless, God will sometimes allow a symbolic or a partial fulfillment as evidence that the future literal fulfillment of the prophecy is coming. Sometimes God will give us prophecy in a picture or contain it in a parable. We spent several weeks talking about parable prophecies and looking specifically at those given to us about the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13. We spent a week looking at the proto-prophecy, the very first prophecy in all the Bible given to Satan, but for our good and for our comfort and for the assurance of our victory through the seed of the woman who would be sent, the conquering king who would come and crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and this coming seed of the woman, identified by being virgin born, by, by being born of the seed of the woman, not the seed of a man, he will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will only be able to bruise his heel. And in fact, we see that that is not only literally fulfilled on the cross, when the heels of Jesus Christ were literally bruised, when that uh, nail was driven through his ankles, but also symbolically will be fulfilled as Jacob and the descendants of Jacob. The word Jacob literally means heel in Hebrew are bruised by Satan during the great tribulation as judgment on them, but also as a way to purify them and bring them to their knees so that at at last all of Israel will cry, all that is left of Israel will cry out to Jesus and he will come back as he promised and deliver them. Now again, we have also begun considering the fact that prophecies are sometimes hidden within text. They're, They're what I'm describing as shrouded within text. And the Bible uh, self-identifies this as a mystery or as a hidden saying. Uh, Mystery in Hebrew, mystery in Greek, both essentially mean the same thing, a secret of which initiation is necessary. Strong says, the counsels of God once hidden but now revealed in the gospel are some factor of, and helps word studies defines, quote, not something unknowable, rather It is what can only be known through revelation because God reveals it. And so because of the initiation that took place when God himself stepped not only into space but into time, that God became a man and and he began to reveal things that had never been revealed before and put together pieces of the puzzle. There were clues that were hidden in in the Old Testament, but now Jesus begins to put these clues together. Remember 
from Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says, I'm, I'm giving you treasures that are old and new. I'm taking some old prophecies and I'm, I'm giving you some clear new understanding into what they really mean and how they fit together. And of course, he continues to do that specifically through the Apostle Paul, but also through Peter and then John in the book of Revelation and taking all of these uh, prophecies that are in the Old Testament and giving new prophecies on top of them, but also connecting those old prophecies together in ways that were un, uh, misunderstood or, or unable to be understood prior to Jesus coming. Now, we saw last week there are some prophecies that are still hidden. Not all the prophecies are revealed yet, and, and it's not until Revelation says it's not until the seven thunder judgments are revealed that all of the mysteries of God that are in the Scriptures will finally be revealed. There are still mysteries. We looked at some of those, but we also began to consider some others that have been revealed. And so now I want to take you from the prophet Zechariah to the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Zechariah tonight, and I want to begin to show you some mysteries of the church. Mysteries of the church. The Apostle Paul says that the existence of the church in the Old Covenant was a mystery. That does not mean that it wasn't hinted at. That does not mean that it wasn't mentioned at all. But it was not able to be understood until Jesus came. You cannot have a body of Christ before the coming of Christ. You cannot have a body of Christ before the Spirit of Christ is here to give life to that body. And people who think that the uh, the, the church of Israel, the, the assembly of Israel is the same thing as the assembly or the body or the church of Jesus Christ are just uh, sadly confused on that point because you cannot have a living body apart from the Spirit of God who did not come in this way until Pentecost. And of course, he, he could not come until Messiah came first because Messiah was the one who sent him. God the Father and, and Jesus Christ, God the Son, sent us God, the Holy Spirit, did not Jesus say in John that I will send you another counselor, another comforter in my place? And so remember, as we uh, before we jump into the book of Zechariah, that the church was a mystery until Christ's first advent. Now, we're not going to spend much time tonight, if any, talking about the rapture of the church. But please understand that two of history's greatest mysteries were not, they were, they were hinted at in the Old Testament, but they were not and could not be revealed until Jesus Christ himself came. And those mysteries are the existence of the church. And then also Paul talks about the rapture of the church. And so the church is born in Acts chapter 2. But the rapture of the church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, is also a mystery. Behold, I show you unto you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Now, I don't know if we'll get into this next week. We'll see how the Lord leads this week. Uh, we, may look at, we may look at the rapture specifically next week. But this week, we're going to talk about this hint of the church in the Old Testament. And one of the places that the church is pictured in mystery form is in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. Would you go with me to Zechariah chapter 3? Verse 
And he showed me Joshua the high priest, verse 1 of uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is getting a vision from God here, and in this vision, a man named Joshua, who is the high priest at that time, is standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, Joshua, Yeshua, is the Old Testament name for Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. The Hebrew of Yeshua is translated or transliterated into English as Joshua, but the Greek for Jesus is translated into English, of course, as Jesus, but it's the same name. Uh, Joshua and Jesus in, in their root are the same name. And so Jesus was uh, named uh, by God. His name means uh, Yahweh's salvation or Yahweh saves. And so Joshua, the, uh, it, the forerunner of Jesus, the, is symbolic of Jesus. We're talking about symbolic prophecies. It's Joshua who leads the people into the land. So Moses is the lawgiver. And he gets the people to the land, but then it's Joshua who leads people into the land of promise. And now here also we see a man named Joshua who was high priest at the time. Of course, Jesus is our high priest. And so there is a picture being drawn here. Now, the, it's, not a, it's not an equivalency picture because we're going to see that our, our Jesus is sinless. This Jesus is not. This is not the Jesus of of Calvary. This is the Jesus of the book of Zechariah. And he is standing before the angel of the Lord. And notice who else is standing here. Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Satan still has access to part of heaven. He does. We see it in the book of Job. We see it here. It's not until the war in heaven, which in, pro, in prophecy, and we'll, we'll get here eventually, but Revelation chapter 12, the war in heaven is not something that took place in the, in the ancient past. It's a prophetic event that's going to happen. And when that war happens, Satan will have no more access. But what happens after Satan gets kicked out of heaven for the final time in Revelation 12? We're told that the saints who are in heaven begin to rejoice. And they will say that, that it will be said of them that they overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Well, before mankind sinned and, and Satan fell before Adam sinned, I mean, he was there to tempt Adam, right? There were no saints in heaven to rejoice over Satan's fall. They hadn't, they hadn't been there. In fact, there were no saints in heaven until after the resurrection. And so this is a future event. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And that is why you need the high priest, Jesus Christ. And that is why you need him in heaven. Because when Satan brings accusation against me, I have a high priest who says paid in full. Paid in full. I paid that debt. Yeah, I paid for that. I paid for that. Under the blood. We need our high priest. So here is this angel of the Lord standing Satan is there resisting the high priest. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. See, before Jesus Christ came, the high priest, the book of Hebrews talks about this. The high priest of Israel had to make sacrifice for their own sins because they were sinners just like us. 
But Jesus Christ, what made him special was he was the sinless sacrifice. He who knew no sin became sin for us legally, symbolically, by giving his life for our sins in our place. But this high priest needs somebody to do that for him. Joshua, clothed with filthy garments, stood before the angel, and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. See, it's not what we do that makes us righteous. It's what Jesus does for us. It's the blood of Jesus that is applied legally to our account in heaven that pays our debt. It's not what we do. That pays our debt. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, verse 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, thou wilt keep my charge, even thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Now, you say, I, I'm not sure I see the church yet. Well, here we come. We're going to walk through this slowly, okay? Because this is, this is a little bit of a, a brain burner here. But I want to show you something, and this is not something that I discovered. We're going to uh, look at something that was discovered by uh, Ken Johnson. We looked at one of um, his discoveries last week. We're going to look at another one here tonight. I want you to li listen very carefully to what God says here. Hear now, verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at for behold pay attention so now he said hear and behold i will bring forth my servant the branch joshua you need your sins forgiven but i'm going to bring the branch you're just a a, a branch plucked from the fire but i'm bringing my branch my branch is going to come capital b branch my servant for behold, pay attention again. This is the third time in these sentences that God has said, listen up. Don't miss this. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Again, same name as Jesus. Same name as Jesus in the Hebrew. Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Now, let's walk through this. Number one, in Zechariah 3, God himself gives a prophecy to high, the high priest Joshua involving his servant, the branch. And his work of redeeming and purifying Israel. We have the presentation of the branch. Jesus was called the Nazarene, was he not? The branch comes. Then there is a seven-eyed stone. And then Messiah completes the work of purifying Israel. Now remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Prophecy is sometimes fulfilled in stages. Sometimes you get a one, one prophecy that's actually fulfilled in different 
epochs or epics, depending on whether you're from the United States or Great Britain. Epochs or, ep or epics. I've always wondered, why, is that, why do I hear that word pronounced differently? Well, it's pronounced differently depending on what country you're from. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Different epochs or epochs in history in one prophecy. So we have a branch that is presented in his scent. That's the first advent. We have the fulfillment of his mission in purifying Israel. And everyone gets along. There's peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and they're resting under the fig tree, which is symbolic of the nation of Israel, and the vine. What is between those two events? Now, this was a mystery back then. They didn't understand that this was a separate event, right? They didn't understand that there was a, a time period be between, which, which as of right now is, two, is about 2,000 years almost, and counting. They didn't understand that there was going to be a gap in there. What fills that gap? A seven-eyed stone. A seven-eyed stone that God himself will engrave. It sits between the beginning of the work of Messiah. That began, you could say, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. You could say on the cross, you could say in the empty tomb, whoever you but it became it came in the first advent, right? And it will be fulfilled in the second advent. Now the inscription is not given. God says, I'm gonna engrave the stone. But he doesn't tell us what's on the stone. Or does he? Look again at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. Now this word wondered at in Hebrew literally means a wonder or a sign or a portent. So follow God, what he's saying here. It's not as confusing as we make it. God says there's an inscription I'm going to write on this. And by the way, you and your friends are the key to that inscription. Now, what do we know about their friends other than their names? Well, nothing. But what did we see in Genesis 5 last week? Dr. Chuck Missler discovered that if we interpret the genealogy from Adam to Noah and just translate the Hebrew names, we get an incredible message about the pierced one who's going to come and who's going to bring rest. So Dr. Ken Johnson said, well, maybe that's going on here as well. I mean, if God says the, he's going to write an inscription and the key is the, uh, uh, Joshua and his friends, then maybe, since all we know is about them is their name, maybe the inscription is their names. So I'm not going to take the time to read all of their names from the text. You can check this out on your own, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. But if we just take their names in the order that they're given in the Bible, and when someone is called, um, you know, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, since that's given as part of their name or title, we include that in the, tr in the translation. Are you following me? Raise your hand if you're following me. You remember where we were? Okay. Where we were last week in Genesis 5. What do these names mean? Well, Heldi means age, Tobijah means good, Jedediah, news, Hen, grace, Zephaniah, Jehovah prepared, Josiah, foundation, Zephaniah, Jehovah prepared, Halem, pierced one, Joshua, Yehovah's salvation, Yehodazek, I'm, I'm butchering the pronunciation of these names, I apologize, cleanses, and Zerubbabel, the Lord overflows. So here's what 
Dr. Johnson suggests, and here's what I believe as well, that if we just simply translate the names, we have the inscription on the seven-eyed stone. Here's what the names say if we put them in order and simply translate them. The age of good news and grace, Jehovah has prepared. The foundation Jehovah has prepared is the pierced one. Jehovah's salvation cleanses and the Lord infills. Now, you may believe in coincidences. That's an awful lot of coincidences. To think that, that, that those names that God said, God said, I'm going to write an inscription. And by the way, psst, you and your friends are the key to the inscription. That that description just so happens to perfectly, perfectly describe what is happening between the first advent of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. What we would call the church age. A time when Messiah has given us to, to spread the good news. And what is the good news? That grace Jehovah has prepared, the foundation is the pierced one, and Jehovah's salvation cleanses us from our sin. Remember, Joshua the high priest in the vision needs cleansing. How is he going to get cleansed? The real Jesus is going to stand up. The, real Je- the coming Jesus, the final Jesus, is going to stand up. And he's going to give his life. He's going to be the foundation. Does not Paul call him the foundation, the, the cornerstone of the church? Does not the apostle Peter say that he is the chief cornerstone? We are built on Jesus Christ. And the pierced one cleanses us. And then, what did he do on Pentecost? He sent the Lord himself to infill us. He sent the Holy Spirit to infill us. This prophecy was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Encoded into the text. Now, Jesus was pointing, God was pointing to it, right? He's pointing to it. Hey, pay attention. Listen, but how many people did the work to actually sit down and, and think, God really wants me to pay attention to these people. Why? Well, maybe their names give us the inscription that God told us he was going to write on the seven-eyed stone. Now, if that doesn't c- convince you, go with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I told you we were going to go from Zechariah to Revelation tonight. Revelation chapter 5, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open or read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. 
Now, at some point, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time just looking at these seven spirits. Some people think this is the Holy Spirit. That's not my position, but I respect you if you uh, think this is the uh, representation of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that these are... These seven spirits are the one Holy Spirit. I believe these seven spirits are the same seven spirits that are given to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. These are the seven angels, the seven spirits that have oversight and specific ministration of these different churches. The seven eyes represent seven spirits of God. Now, I believe... The seven eyes representing seven spirits in Revelation also are the same seven eyes in the vision of Zechariah representing the church age. And I believe this strongly suggests to us seven phases of the church age. Go back to Revelation chapter 1 for a moment. Revelation chapter 1. John has a vision of the resurrected Jesus. Jesus appears to him. He's in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and Jesus shows up in his glory. And even though John knew Jesus for many years, I believe longer than the three years that he served with him as disciple, when he sees Jesus in his glory, he falls down as one who is dead. He is terrified of Jesus in his glory. Verse 17, I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys to hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars of the angels, of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now there's so much. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to eventually get, we're going to do this on a Sunday morning, we're going to do a study of the seven churches. But I just want to give you a little bit of a teaser tonight to connect this with Zechariah chapter 3. I believe this strongly suggests to us as we study the seven churches... And again, we'll do a deep dive when we have more time at, at some point uh, in the future. The vision of the seven-eyed stone and the existence of the seven churches strongly suggests to us that there are seven phases of the church age. I'm going to walk you through those phases very quickly. And again, I'm going to do exactly what we've been doing this week and last week, looking at simply what the names mean. What do the names of the seven churches mean? We're not going to take the time to read all seven of the letters. But let me just suggest to you, as we see again in chapter 1, verse 19, that these things concern which John has seen, the things which are, and the things that shall be hereafter. Now, what some people do is they say, well, Revelation 2 and 3 is, is the things that are, and then Revelation 4 and following are the things that come after but what we have seen over the last several months is that prophecy doesn't necessarily have to work that way. That it can be both and. That it can be the things that are, but also the things that are can also have a dual meaning, a double application. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. What is the first church? It's Ephesus. What does Ephesus mean? It means beloved. Beloved. 
this describes this letter. Again, I'd encourage you to read it. You get a blessing. God promises you a blessing just by reading these letters. I would encourage you to read through these chapters on uh, when you get home or, or tomorrow. But the church of Ephesus, which means beloved, describes a church that is doctrinally true but has lost its first love. This is the apostolic church that was so committed and so passionate and preached love, love for God, number one, love for others, number two. And yet as the apostles began to die off because they were martyred, all but John, the church began to drift from their love, their first love. What came next in history? Well, notice the second church is Smyrna, which means myrrh. And where do we see myrrh in the Bible? We see it in the gifts of the Magi, don't we? Myrrh, which symbolizes death. And what is the message to the church of Smyrna about? Well, it's the persecuted church. What began to happen in the first century? towards the end of the first century, extending for several hundreds of years. Ten major persecutions, ten major official persecutions by the state of Rome. The third church we come to is Pergamos. Pergamos literally means married to the tower. And when we read the letter to the church at Pergamos, we find a church that is compromised that has begun to marry itself to the world. And what happened in history after the official persecutions of the Roman Empire against the church ended? Constantine had a vision. He, quote-unquote, converted to Christianity. He didn't completely convert, but he officially converted. And the church became the official state religion of Rome. And compromise began to seep into the church. Then we come to number four, Thyatira, which means continual sacrifice. This is described as the harlot church. Here we see a woman described as Jezebel, who is leading people astray. And what do we see happening after Rome became the church of the world? And the power rested in Rome, not only politically, but religiously we see the blasphemy of repeatedly sacrificing Christ over and over and over again in what is called the mass the continual sacrifice of Messiah just as the name suggests the harlot church leads to number five the Sardis church what happened eventually people rebelled against Rome. We call it the Reformation. The church that tried to reform the church of Rome. And they, quote-unquote, came out of the church of Rome. They escaped the apostasy of Rome. Or did they? Because God says that Sardis has a reputation for being alive, but is actually dead. And what you see in the Many of the Reformation denominations, I'm not going to name them tonight, but many of the Reformation denominations do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not preach that you're saved by grace through faith. They preach that you're saved by the church, by your works. 
They have a reputation for being alive, but they are dead. But that brings us then to the church at Philadelphia, which if you know your American history, you know means brotherly love. And what was going to happen in Philadelphia? There would be a faithful church, a missionary church, and the door to their endeavors, God said, I'm not going to let anybody shut. You're faithful. You're getting the message out. And what do we see happen? By the way, what nation did God use to launch the missionary movement around the world? Well, you could say England maybe began it, but most of it came from here. And where was this nation born? Coincidentally. Where was the declaration signed? Coincidentally. Philadelphia. And because of the freedom that we have in this country, the church has been able to send out missionaries all over the world and been able to continue to evangelize the world despite all of America's great and many sins. The faithful missionary church, the great revivals, the ripples of which we are still enjoying today, although they are getting smaller ripples and farther apart. And that brings us to Laodicea. What does Laodicea mean? The people rule. The people rule. The church is going to be all about what we want. Church is going to be all about what we think is important. Oh, we're going to be rich. We're a rich church now. Jesus says you're poor. Oh, we see things so much more clearly than anyone else in church history has seen it. We've got, we understand God so much better than those people who wrote the Bible. You're blind. And Jesus says, if you don't get straightened out, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Because you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. And isn't that what we see happening more and more? The Philadelphia churches becoming fewer and fewer. And the Laodicean churches multiplying. And now we're beginning to export, export Laodicean churches as much as we're exporting Philadelphian churches from our country. You may believe in coincidences. I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe that the names and the letters that are written to these seven churches that align with the seven-stoned, seven-eyed stone that sits in Zechariah chapter 3 is just a, a big coincidence. But what does that tell us about where we are in church history? very end we're at the very end and what does Jesus say to the church at Philadelphia jump with me to chapter 3 because thou hast kept verse 10 because thou hast kept the word of my patience I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth behold I come quickly meaning I come at any moment. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Would you stand as we close in prayer? Ramona's going to come. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. If you have a need, the altar will be open. Our deacons will be here, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the miracle of
prophecy, God, as we look at the wonder of the prophecies that were mysteries for thousands of years in some cases, God, you have revealed them to us. You have given us such treasure, but God, these treasures tell us the hour is short. God, help us to recognize the day that we live in to redeem the time because the days are evil, God, and to have a deeper sense of the urgency of the mission you have sent us on. We love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.